0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 23. We're going to look at one verse here that will kind of be a springboard for a couple other passages that we're going to briefly look at uh, this morning. Uh, Did you know that in the Bible that God tells us that there is one thing that we should not sell? There is one possession that we have, one one item that, that is far too valuable For us to ever get rid of. And compromising on this thing has dramatic consequences. Now, we'll look at some very familiar examples of that in a bit, uh, but I'd like for us to start this morning with the spiritual principle here in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 23. We know that Proverbs is a book of wisdom, we know that it was written by Solomon, who was given uh, personal and spiritual insight that the Bible says surpassed the collective wisdom of everybody else. Uh, His his knowledge, his insight, his wisdom uh, was off the charts. Uh, It couldn't be measured because God had blessed him and honored his very simple and very humble request um, to have discernment from the Lord. How many need discernment from the Lord this morning? That should be a daily prayer, right? Every time I come to the Word, I say, Lord, give me discernment. I don't want to mess this up. So we all need discernment. We all need an understanding of what the Lord is saying and what the Lord wants to do in our lives and what he wants to teach us. Well, as Solomon took this great role as the king of Israel, he said, Lord, I need discernment. I need wisdom. I need the insight to know how I can lead, how I can live by the word of God, how I can understand the word of God. And God was pleased by that. And he gave Solomon the ability to see and understand things that other people didn't. Solomon decided to write a book of wisdom, to write a book of Proverbs, sayings that that, that, uh, communicate wisdom, how we should live. And in this book, he doesn't mess around. He cuts right to the chase. He says, this is how we should live. Now, in this particular chapter, chapter 23 of the book of Proverbs, thank you for turning, He's drawing a sharp contrast in the first part of the book between the futile pursuit of wealth and materialism and all that the world values. That's what he establishes. And then he contrasts it to a disciplined life. And he gives warning and encouragement. Don't envy sinners, but... Fear the Lord always. In other words, don't get caught up in the, in the rigmarole. You remember that word from the sixties? The rigmarole of all the life has, all the, all the junk, all the things that the world says, this is so important. He says, don't mess with that because it's futile. Make sure you're fearing the Lord. Make sure you're disciplined in your pursuits. And we get to chapter 23, verse 23, and that's really the central verse of the chapter. It's really the, the linchpin of the text. And after verse 23, which we'll look at in a minute, he he goes on to talk about the ways that sin lures us in and how its result is only sorrow and trouble and deep disappointment. This is a powerful chapter of Scripture. I want to encourage you this week, take some time, read it, study it, tear it apart, divide it into sections. Those of you who took the, the Bible study methods class, you know how to do that, right? It's been a while since you did a chart. Good chapter to chart because you can take it apart and see the themes that are developed as Solomon talks about the futility of man's pursuit. But let's look at this one verse and then we'll turn to a couple of passages. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23. He says, buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction and understanding. Now, it's kind of weird to our thinking to to kind of view truth as a commodity that can be bought or sold. But the fact that the Spirit tells us, be very careful how you handle truth, be very careful what you do with this, means that we absolutely can buy or can sell truth. And we have to reorient our perception a little bit because it seems almost a little crass to say, well, we can buy it. We, we always try to steer clear of those things uh, in our faith, of saying, well, this is something you can purchase, something you can, you can earn, because we know in past history that, that the enemy wants us to think, well, you can earn your way into heaven. There's no way you can earn your way into heaven. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through salvation, by putting your faith in his work to, to die, put your sins on the cross, and rise again to defeat them. There's no other way to heaven. So we have to be very careful when we say, well, you can buy truth. We need to understand exactly what the Spirit is teaching us here. And I want you to think this morning in terms of this verse, in terms of an investment. Now, when you invest in something, you declare that it has great value to you because you're committing yourself to it based on its worth. If you had been wise enough, and I wasn't, three years ago, also didn't have the money, but I digress you had been wise enough three years ago to buy gold because you looked ahead and you saw some detrimental government policies that were causing the economy to keep going sour and you're watching the problems in Europe that were kind of rapidly emulating and and you kind of looked at what was going on in the world and you said, you know what, I need to put my investment into something that will not lose value. If you had done that three years ago, you would be greatly rewarded right now you would have known that gold never loses its value. And this is not a commercial. I'm just trying to give you the spiritual principle, right? Gold never loses its value. So based on its inherent worth and based on the wisdom of its strength as a commodity, investing into it would be a discerning commitment to make. Now, the Bible tells us that in a much more profound way and certainly a more valuable way, That we can invest in truth. What does that mean? It means that we love truth because it has value to our soul. It means that we study it. We commit ourselves to it. We live by it. That this book that we hold in our hands, this precious word of God, and I hope you're not taking it for granted and tossing it in the car and putting it underneath stuff and it's getting bent, and, and where's my Bible for something? I hope you know where your Bible is at all times because this is a precious commodity that God has given to us that He says, don't sell it. You need to have more and more of this. You need to invest more and more of this book into your life. You need to embrace it. You need to engulf it. It needs to be everything that you are. You shouldn't make any decisions or go any direction without knowing what my Word says. You shouldn't act in any way, think any things apart from my word. And we should commit ourselves to it and love it and study it because it never loses its value. In fact, the more you love it and the more you live by it, the more precious it becomes to you. Imagine this morning if you did not have a Bible ever again. If somebody took away your Bible, went into your house, took away all your Bibles, took away all your electronic resources, you could not get a Bible. We have believers every week that download our messages in China. 17, 18 podcasts a week in China of our little church. Those believers there don't have the freedom that we have to hold a Bible in their hands. They have to meet in in quiet. They have to avoid Uh, the, The repression that's there. Imagine never ever holding a Bible again. We would feel such an unbelievable void in not being able to study. Not to be encouraged. Not to be challenged. Not to be convicted. Prayer would become more valuable to us because we would be desperate to hear the Spirit of God's voice. Being with the body would be so important because we'd want to share. What's the Lord saying to you? What did you Here in your prayer, what's what's God been speaking to your spirit? Oh, I need some encouragement. I don't have a Bible anymore. But tell me what's going on. All the verses we've memorized throughout the years would be like rain in the desert. They would be all we have. Oh, you remember what God says in this verse. You remember what the Lord says. Oh, how beautiful that passage is. And we would instantly regret that we didn't memorize more. The Word of God is precious. And when you think about that, and I know it's hard to fathom because I don't know about you, but I got like 20 Bibles. I got so many Bibles on my shelf. But imagine this morning, try to really get into this now. Imagine never holding this book again. How much more does that thought make you want to buy more to make a greater investment into the truth of God's Word, to hide it in your heart so that you might not sin against the Lord, to commit it to your mind's memory so it's always before you. It's always there. It makes so much sense. But here in this verse, the Spirit tells us that there's another option to how we handle the truth. We can either invest into it or we can sell it. And what does that mean? To sell truth. Well, it means... To mishandle it. It means to disrespect it. It means to neglect it. It means to disobey it. It means to compromise on it. In other words, to take this precious book that we love with our life that has told us about faith in Christ that has been a backbone so many times when we're hurting and we can go to the Psalms and say, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When we need an encouragement and strength, when we need a challenge and conviction, when we need a doctrine, we've always come back to this book and we will never abandon this book. But imagine if you don't have it. Or worse, imagine if you neglect it. Imagine if you say, ah, it doesn't really matter. Ah, okay, it's from the Lord, I know, but you just don't know how busy I am. And I've got other things that are competing for my attention. I'm trying to get ahead. And I've got family issues. I've got healthy. But listen, I understand all those things. I've had all those things in my own life. But, but the Word of God is precious and valuable. How much do we devalue it when we just kind of say, well, I know God said it, but it doesn't really matter. Selling the truth is disinterest. Selling the truth is a lack of commitment to it. Now, there's no question, no question, that that has happened within our society. And even more tragically, it's happened within Christianity. We've talked so many times about the compromise on God's Word and kind of the rebranding of God's truth to be relevant that I'm not going to belabor that this morning. But what's particularly salient right now and will be over the next few months Is is how much the truth of God is being aggressively attacked and undermined in our country to the point that our future as a nation and our future in terms of religious freedom, hear me now, is really at stake. You need to believe that because it's true. Evidence of that is in our presidential campaign. Lying is routine. Manipulation of the truth is strategic. Advancing an agenda just by saying a certain thing that will create doubt is, is all over the place. I was listening, and this is not a political statement in any way because I'm going to clarify at the end. I was listening to the radio yesterday as Paul Ryan was announced as the vice presidential candidate. And the first line after the reporter said the story and they said, well, this is the reaction from the other side. They said, well, the other side saying that... that he and and Romney are millionaires who can't relate to the people, and inferring that they're the only ones that are millionaires. And I'm driving and I'm thinking, well, of course, that fails to mention that the president and vice president are multimillionaires. Every senator is a millionaire. Just about every congressman is a millionaire. All the lobbyists are millionaires. It's just a bunch of millionaires running around Washington that don't really care about us. And yet, it sounds good to manipulate facts And they are facts. They are millionaires. But it sounds good to manipulate it and say, well, they're the only ones and they don't care because it's advancing some sort of political agenda. And it'll be on both sides. I'm not being partisan this morning. It's all over the place. And it just tells how much truth is devalued. It's indicative of the callousness of our culture about what is right. So truth especially biblical truth, has been distorted and selfishly redefined and treated subjectively and influenced by personal bias. The most disturbing example of that is the blatant redefinition and misrepresentation of the message of Jesus Christ. It is no coincidence that at the onset of Jesus' public ministry, he was tempted by the devil and all three of the attacks against Jesus were a misappropriation of the Word of God in order to tempt Jesus to act selfishly and to deviate from the will of the Father. It didn't work. And then immediately after He's tempted, Jesus goes into Galilee, and the first recorded word of Jesus Christ's ministry is this word. You ready? Repent. The very first word Jesus says as He starts His public ministry is repent. Now, I tell you that because that is a huge contrast to the refined message that the world tells us that Jesus brought. The world says that God is love, so far so good, that he does not really want to hold us accountable, that because he's loving, he tolerates our our failure because, you know, we all kind of mean good and we all are pretty good. And God doesn't really want to restrict how we live because he just wants us to be, tell me, happy. So Jesus' message, first message, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, time to do some business. You guys have been monkeying around for thousands of years. You've rejected me. You've gone against my commandments. You've ignored me. I've been gracious to you. I've helped you. And the time's up. It is time now to repent. That message is completely lost. Of course God loves us. He proved it by sending Christ. But Jesus' message was, turn from sin. Confess your sin. Deny yourself. Trust in me alone. And live in holiness. How often do we hear that message about Jesus? See, the truth has been sold. Now, there are many examples in the Bible of people who compromise truth. But this morning, I want to just, in the next few minutes, look briefly at three. And the reason their lives apply to us and can teach us is because each instance, each person had an advantage from the Lord that pertains to anybody's situation. Anybody in this room can relate to one of the three. So let's take our Bibles. turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28. Let's start with Saul. King Saul. We'll take a couple minutes in each one and we'll pray. Saul was the first king of Israel, but he wasn't God's choice. He wasn't God's choice because God was supposed to be Israel's king. God says, this is a theocracy. I'm going to be your king. Israel said, well, that's wonderful, but we don't really want that. We want a guy. So they say, we want a human king. And Saul, their choice, because he was popular and good-looking and tall, really didn't have a heart for the Lord. But the truth that Saul has as he begins his reign as king, the truth that he has is that even despite those two negatives, the Lord was still gracious to him. The Lord still gave him opportunity. The Lord was still willing to help him and to lead him. He was not Saul, God's choice, God didn't want a human king. He wanted to be king. The people rebelled. They chose the wrong guy. But God still said, that's fine. I will help you and I will bless you and I will anoint you and my spirit will be with you as long as you seek me and as long as you lead the people spiritually and don't rebel against the Lord. Now, there's nothing to suggest that despite God's disappointment and despite Saul's shallowness, that he still couldn't have been one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. In fact, in the chapter uh, that we're going to read, we won't read all of it, it's a couple of verses. When when Saul falters, actually it's back, excuse me, I'm sorry, about chapter 23. When Saul first falters, Samuel said, your kingdom could have been forever. So God didn't shortchange Saul. He didn't say, well, I'm really going to give all the benefits to David, but I don't like you, so I'm not going to give you advantage. He did not want Saul to be king, but he said, I will still work in your life, and I will still make your kingdom eternal as long as you do what I say. Saul didn't want to do that. God's anointing and favor was undeserved because God's grace is always undeserved. But Saul had the opening to buy truth and remain in the center of God's will and God's blessing. The problem was, Saul didn't have a real great interest in doing that. He was more interested in the praise of the people than the presence of God. At the very start of his reign, he acts foolishly. He shows great disregard for God's teaching and God's values. And in his first act as king, I mean, he's anointed as king, everything happens. And in his first official act as king, he, he burns the burnt offering, which was a huge no-no. And it's so wrong that Samuel comes to him. I mean, we're talking a month or two into a 42-year reign. In the first month, Samuel comes to him and says, that's it, your reign's over. You blew it. God gave you very specific guidelines of what you should do, but you don't have a heart for the Lord, and God is going to take away your kingdom. It could have been eternal, but it's not. Saul never repents of that, He continues to do one stupid thing after another. He recklessly defies the Lord. He he moves further and further into self-destructive behavior. And eventually, it doesn't take long for God to say to Samuel, anoint David as king. And for years, Saul continues to function as king while David's waiting in the wings. That's how drastic it was. And once David's anointed and Saul gets wind of it, it only gets worse. He gets filled with fear and jealousy and he chronically pursues David to try to kill him and he steadfastly refuses to seek the Lord. He doesn't listen to the Lord. He doesn't listen to the prophets. And finally, long introduction, he hits rock bottom. Chapter 28, start reading in verse 3. Now Samuel was dead and all Israel lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists in other words those were the, those were demonic people those were people that were that were trying to consult spirits he removed them when he was living right so the philistines gathered together verse 4 and came and camped in shunam and saul gathered all israel together and they camped in gilboa when saul saw the camp of the philistines he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly When he inquired of the Lord, the Lord didn't answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said, Behold, there's a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now this is a problem. In a desperate attempt to retain power, And control and popularity, we've seen this in our own country, Saul sells the truth and he aligns himself away from the Lord and with the enemy. Notice back in verse 5, his abject fear. Why does he have fear? Because he has no spiritual confidence whatsoever. The Lord has removed himself from Saul because Saul loved himself more than he loved God. So you say, well, at least he goes in verse 6 and he consults God. The problem was he hadn't done that for a long time. And he should have known at this point that God wasn't listening anymore. So many reasons why God wasn't listening. But especially because the only reason Saul is asking the Lord for help at this point is because he's scared about his situation. And when God doesn't answer, how many know you need to persevere in prayer if you're not hearing God answer the first time? He prays, oh, Lord, I need some help now. Come on. Uh, I haven't been talking to you for years, but I I got a situation with Philistines, so I'm going to need some help. And God says, no. And Saul doesn't keep seeking. He doesn't say, I need to get my heart right. I have not been walking with the Lord. I need to get on my knees and repent. We don't see any repentance in here. It's just he inquired of the Lord. And because God doesn't answer the first time, Saul then decides to take the situation into his own hands. He looks for a quick fix because this shows where his heart really is. And even though he had removed the mediums and the spiritists and all those people who were into that from the nation, now he wants them back. Now this is a very important little spiritual principle right here in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And that is never go back to what you abandoned in your old life. What you have abandoned, what you have given up, what you've submitted to the Lord and said, I don't want to live like this anymore. You have freed me from this. Lord, please remove this from my life. I don't want to be in bondage anymore. I want to walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ. The worst thing we can do at that point is to say, I need to go back to that. Saul goes back. He's physically removed them from the nation, but he hasn't abandoned it in his heart. So instead of loving the Lord and seeking the Lord and serving the Lord, he goes back to it. Listen, your old self and my old self this morning has no attraction to us because it has no benefit to us. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, don't put yourself back into jail. Don't go back into bondage. Christ has freed you from it. And yet so many believers, right? We walk back into bondage and we say, well, I'm just kind of enjoying the sin just for a little while. Just a little compromise. Just, just a little deviation. Just, just a little, my old self. Boy, I sure do miss it. I, I, I miss it. No, don't go back to it. And then look at what he does. We won't read it because of the time. In verse 8, he disguises himself to go to this medium. That should have been another clue that it was the wrong thing. If you've got to disguise yourself to go somewhere, you're not living right. But he plows ahead. And he asked to talk to Samuel's spirit. Now, we don't know how that happened. It's the only instance in the Bible we're not going to form our theology around it. So I'm not going to talk this morning about what it means to speak to the dead. This is an isolated situation. I don't want to be distracted from the spiritual principle. He goes to the medium and he says, I want to talk to Samuel. Now, I ask myself as I'm studying this, why Samuel? Why would you want to talk to somebody that clearly won't approve of what you're doing because it's contrary to the Lord? It shows that Saul was hungry for the truth. He wanted to hear what the Lord had to say, even though he showed no propensity to do what the Lord says. He's led the nation on the wrong path spiritually. There aren't a lot of people to get godly counsel from. Actually, the one he should probably consult with is David, but that's a little dicey because he's trying to kill David. So he probably can't call David up and say, Hey, can you meet with me? I need a word from the Lord and you're listening to him and I'm not. He's not going to be doing that. He knows he needs truth. And he knows, look at verse 15, that God has stopped helping him. So somehow this medium gets the spirit of Samuel. And Samuel says, got news for you. God's your adversary at this point. Why do you want to hear the word of God all of a sudden, Saul? Why all of a sudden are you interested in knowing what God has to say? This is not a spiritual revival in Saul's heart. This is purely self-seeking. Believer, listen this morning. Always be so careful about how you pray and about how I pray that it's not self-seeking. God knows our hearts. He knows why we do what we do. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, We need to always confess and examine our motives. And then we need to say, Spirit of God, you do some extra examination. Cleanse me out. Search me, David says, and know me and see if there's any wickedness, any little cell in there that would hinder me from being pure in your sight. Lord, I confess my sin. I bring it before you. Cleanse me and purify me and know my motives. Saul never does that. He just says, I want some answers. And Samuel says, God's taken his hand off of you. Your kingdom's done. It's all over, Saul. You have stopped listening to the Lord. And I want you to notice the very visceral reaction to the truth. Look at verse 20. It says that he fell on his face. This is not falling on his face out of humble awe and sincere repentance before the Lord. This is still fear. He's still lacking in strength. That's what happens when you sell the truth. When you sell the truth, you lose confidence and strength because you know it's contrary to what the Lord's doing and God will never bless us when we're doing contrary to what he wants. He will never bless us when we are living in a way that is contrary to him. This is it for Saul. Two more chapters and he's dead. David takes on the Amalekites with God's help and wins a battle, and the people recognize his hand on David's life. Even the Philistines say, that guy David, man, he's got God's hand on him. And within two chapters, Saul dies a tragic death. God had been faithful to him. God had given the opportunity to be led and helped, but Saul sold the truth. Look at another example. Turn over to Judges chapter 16. We're going to spend more time on Saul than we are on the other two, so... We'll move through these quickly. Judges chapter 16, Samson. Samson was the last judge of Israel. His truth, unlike Saul, who was not God's choice but still had God's help, Samson's difference, the truth that he had, was that God had set him apart and blessed him since birth. God gave him the opportunity to greatly influence the people spiritually. His father was a man named Manoah, and Manoah was disturbed by what he saw going on in the nation when the Philistines were oppressing the Jews, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Lord, we need your help, and God answered that prayer, and the Spirit, from the moment Sam, uh, excuse me, Samson was born, you see this chapter 13, verse 24, from the moment Samson came into the earth, it says that the Spirit stirred his heart to serve the Lord. Boy, that's something I want this week. Spirit of God, stir our hearts to serve you this week. The Lord was working from the outset, and in Samson's calling, God gave him great ability, but he also gave him great responsibility that he needed to safeguard, and he gave him a very important truth that he said, Samson, you are to protect this one truth with your life. And just like Saul, Samson could have been one of the greatest leaders in Israel's history. He could have been a man that was known for generations, had the hand of God on his life. All he had to do was be faithful to the Lord. All he had to do was yield to God's leading and direction to how to wisely and spiritually judge the people, how, how to defend the Word of God, how to guard the truth against those who are evil and oppose the Lord. He didn't compromise. He couldn't compromise the spirit of his, uh, secret of his strength. The secret of his strength was his hair. It hadn't been cut because of a Nazarite vow, which meant that you were committing your life to the Lord and you never cut your hair. Samson had a Nazarite vow. So the primary resource that he had been given to serve the Lord was this piece of truth. God said your whole life, your whole ability, your whole uh, ability to judge and minister rests on your hair. Can you imagine such a thing? I got bad hair, so I'm like, don't do that with me. Your hair is the secret, but you can't tell anybody. Guard the truth, Samson. Buy the truth now. Don't don't sell it. You're going to have people that are constantly going after you. We see that all throughout the passage. But Samson, this is the secret to my help and my blessing. We know the story well, but look at a couple verses here in... Um, Judges chapter 16, start in verse 15. Then Delilah said to Samson, How can you say I love you? Oh, can you just hear the violins? How could you say I love you when your heart's not with me? What a manipulation that was. You've deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about while she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, Razors never come on my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I'll become weak and be like any other man. Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart. Samson had the look, he had the power, he had the respect, he had the ability, he had the position, he had the advantage over everybody else. But the biggest strength that he had was not his long hair, it was the help and blessing of the Lord. He squandered that. He sold the truth, voluntarily compromising it for personal pleasure. That's danger number one. Selling the truth for personal pleasure. Number two is selling it to be clever in man's sight. He allows his heart to be swayed by this woman. He doesn't take the time to say to himself, wait a second, she doesn't really love me. She's not committing herself to me. She's only trying to trick me. One time she tries to trick him, he plays with her. Second time she tries to trick him, he plays with her. Third time she tries to trick him, he plays with her. Don't you think a light bulb would have come off at that point, and said, eh, I see a pattern here. Three times she's tried to deceive me and find out the secret of this truth that God says I can't sell. Maybe I should say to myself that she doesn't have my best interests in mind. But Samson has no perspective because his heart has been swayed. He doesn't understand. Three times she lied. Three times she tried to ambush me with the Philistines. God has given me insight to know that she's a snake. I better get away from her because she's going to try again. I can't trust her. But Samson wasn't buying truth. He was selling it. He was surrounding himself with people who are messing with his mind. And he was playing with fire. And when we play with fire, we get worn down by temptation until it devastates us. Let me ask you this morning, is that you? Do you know the Lord and he's blessed you, but you're playing Samson's game of chicken with sin? Oh, you think you're clever and you can navigate your way through the little maze? But I'm telling you this morning, you are mistaken. You're mistaken. There was nothing that was convincing enough to dissuade Samson from obeying the Lord other than his pride. And when we get caught up in pride, there is always a painful downfall. I was I was saddened as I was finishing up this passage last night. I was saddened by, by the pitiful picture of Samson laying asleep in Delilah's lap and the men coming and cutting his hair and then taking him and gouging his eyes out and putting him in chains and taking him to Gaza and standing him in the public square for people to laugh and mock at him. A man who had the blessing of God and the hand of God now is being mocked by a nation that hated God and yet here's the grace of God. He gives Samson one final burst of strength to avenge all of it. But it's still unnecessarily tragic that he dies in the rubble of Gaza short of the potential that God had had for his life if he had just bought truth. He sold it. Are you selling truth this morning in your life? Are, are, are you are you just giving up and compromising and yielding and following after the wrong path? Listen, we all do it. We're all still sinners even though we've been redeemed. But but are you really caught up in it? Because if you are, you got to stop it. And then let me quickly show you a third man who sold the truth. Turn real quick to Matthew 26. You know this one well too. We'll touch on it for two minutes and pray. This one's as close to the Lord as you can get. Saul didn't have really the approval of God, but God helped him anyway. Samson had the calling of the Lord, and God helped him anyway. Now we have a third person. We have Judas. Judas had an advantage that Saul and Samson never had. His truth was that he was in the inner circle with Jesus, chosen to be a disciple Trusted to handle the finances for the group. He could never say, nobody respects me and nobody gives me any authority and nobody thinks that I need an opportunity. He had every opportunity. He heard every single word that Jesus Christ said. He saw every miracle. It was an amazing privilege that he had to be there right in the center of it. Look at what happens. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? They weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. He's right in the center of it. He has something that Saul and Samson never had. He was right there every day with the Son of God. And just like the other two, he had the ability, he the opportunity to have his name be a highlight in the historical record rather than a disgrace to humanity. How do you know Jesus is a disgrace to humanity? Have you ever met anybody named Judas? When, when you're having a child, do you look through the baby name book and go, oh, Judas. Sure, that's it. Judas, Michael, whatever. That'll be great. The name has a connotation to it. Judas is surrounded by truth. He's influenced by truth. He's given a responsibility from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. His position has accountability, the opportunity to serve and influence literally tens of thousands of people, All he has to do is steadfastly walk with the Son of God who he sees every day. But instead of being humbled and joyful that God had opened the door for him who didn't deserve it, instead Judas leveraged it for himself to advance himself. And he sells the truth. He tries to get more power in his selfish arrogance and his false insecurity. He says, Well, I'll show the others. They always take me for granted and they don't think I'm worth anything. So I'll show them. And with his fake little power play, he says, I'll sell them to you. What a joke. What a lie. The lie of self reliance that Adam and Eve fell for, and the people of Babel fell for, and Lot fell for, and Ahab fell for, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Ananias and Sapphira. The list goes on and on. Truth wasn't valuable to them. It was easily changed for what they wanted. So they hand Judas 30 pieces of silver. Thanks, buddy. Good to see you. You know, that false sincerity. Hey, really helped us. Hey, come by the club later. You're awesome, Judas. We love you. (laughs) What a sap. That only cost us 30 pieces of silver. Now we can do what we want. But the transaction was far more costly than that. The price was Jesus' life. And even though God turned that travesty around, and used it to free us from sin and redeem us by his blood and secure our salvation forever, we trust in God. Judas was still stuck. And what's ironic, and I'm done, is that the money he got for selling the truth was never invested. Before he goes and puts a rope around his neck and hangs himself from a tree and his guts spill out, before he does that, he takes the change He goes into the temple and he throws it on the ground. And he walks out. He never enjoyed his purchase because he knew it was wrong. This is the worst kind of sale selling the truth. Buy truth and don't sell it. Get wisdom and instruction. And understanding this morning, what is your spiritual investment? What are you doing with the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel? Matthew 6, 19 says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. That's a bad investment. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves can't break through and steal. Because where your treasure is, tell me the rest of the phrase, there your heart will be also. What you buy and sell, I'm not talking about newspapers and milk. I'm talking about truth. What you buy and sell, what you protect in your heart and mind as a valuable commodity will tell everybody, and especially the Lord, that's where their heart is. So are you making aggressive investments into the spiritual account? Or are you just putting all your stock into what will draw away from him? By truth, don't sell it. How wisely are you investing this morning? Let's pray. Lord, this has been a challenging word that your spirit has given to us this morning. And I pray for every single person here including myself especially myself that we would be very cautious about how we handle the truth Lord you have given us this book and you have given us the gospel and you have given us your spirit for discernment and I pray Lord especially this week that's ahead that we would protect it and invest into it and commit ourselves to it in a fresh way Lord, the enemy always wants to drive us away from the word of God. So Lord, we're going to resist him this week and we're going to dive into the word of God. We're going to keep investing in the spiritual account that you have given to us that we don't deserve, a heavenly account that we have no business holding. Yet because of Christ, because of your son who died and rose again for us, you've given us an eternal spiritual account. Lord, may we invest in it this week. And when we don't, when we're about to sell truth, Lord, convict us hard. Convict us hard so that it's unmistakable. Father, I pray for each person in this room this morning that that would be the commitment of their heart and mind right now. And Lord, if it's not, I pray you would nag them. We love you, Lord. We love your truth. We love your gospel. We love your son. We love salvation. We love eternity. Lord, we praise you for it. We exalt you this morning and ask you to help and protect us and guide us in the truth every day of our lives until you return. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, I don't know what we add to that.